0: Getting hype. Getting pumped now. Just,
1: like, fall on couch.
0: I can use your blank. <laughs> Hello, yes. my favorite plants and pipettes people. <laughs>
1: I think it's getting worse each time, isn't it?
0: <laughs> I think so.
1: Hey and welcome to the podcast for another week.
0: Yes, welcome to this podcast. It's been a couple of minutes since we recorded the last episode. What happened in the meantime?
1: I'm eating ice cream and the ice cream has guar gum in it, which we just found out is from a plant that uh, originated in India and Pakistan and makes some kind of gummy stuff that you can use to make ice cream in a vegan way.
0: Yeah, I tried to use it as a replacement for egg yolks and it's just weird. It's not bad, it's just weird in consistency.
1: You you, you you have like a a solid sheet of ice cream and then I suck it and it doesn't become liquid. It becomes like gelatin in my mouth. It's quite pleasing, actually.
0: (laughs) I'm glad you like it. It's just like, yeah, I I used it and I put like a a half or a teaspoon or something in my mix and it immediately, like usually you have to like cook it a little bit until the flour makes it like set. But it's like immediately went into like this very solid thing and we actually diluted it quite a bit and then put it in the ice machine. And it's still... It's it's still weird, um, but yeah.
1: I've tried before with agar agar, and I had the same thing. Like I was <laughs> like, I'll just thicken the sauce a little bit and put a bit of agar agar in, and it was like that no, was a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. That's why you need like a fine balance. Like, come to the lab, weigh it out, bring it home again.
0: Yeah, but then if you do that with ice cream, you just get fat. If you start doing <laughs> research and start making batches and batches and op- optimizing it. Um, Mm. it's yeah it's a dangerous machine to have at home to be able to make the it, ice cream maker yeah to make as much ice cream as you possibly can eat mm. uh it's like it's like a deep fryer like you can make delicious <laughs> stuff with it but once you put one a deep fryer in your kitchen you just lost you're like, now the
1: deep fryer is worse because like when you get drunk you think i'm gonna deep fry something and we had a friend back home who like got drunk was like i'm gonna deep fry something passed out on his couch and woke up with his kitchen on fire like oh, literally
0: yeah yeah that can't happen with the ice machine. Like, mm. It's, if it overheats it switches off
1: very <laughs> practical.
0: it's very practical. Mm. it's the paper of the week
1: wait it's your arm's this week <laughs> I can eat paper. ice cream
0: yeah you can eat ice cream um, in the meantime my paper this week um let me just scroll up to my notes. Uh, my paper this week is called Single Organelle Quantification Reveals Stoichiometric and Structural Variability of Carboxysomes Dependent on the Environment. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So it has, uh, it's a plant cell paper, mm-hmm. open access. It's something we talked about last week. Um, um, by uh, Yaki Sun and from the lab of Luning Liu. Um, Unfortunately, from the screenshot that I took, I don't see the institution that they're from. Um, But yeah, this is a a paper that deals with single organelle quantification. Um, So we talked on on the blog already about um, single...
1: Single cell quantification. Yeah, single
0: Single. cell quantification. and
1: RNA sequencing.
0: um, Where you just look at a single cell and get the whole transcript from there. In this case, they sort of went one step smaller and just quantified things in a single organelle. Um, and they used the carboxysome here, which is even a particularly small organelle. Um, so
1: it's a suborganella compartment, right?
0: At, uh, they did it here in um, zygnicodistus. So <laughs> mm-hmm. in zygnicodistus, okay. they don't really have organelles. So um, they, yeah, they have these carboxysomes. So it's not within one, but in yeah, in Clamidomonas, for example, it would be a subcompartment. Um, no, that's a pyrenoid. That's not a carboxysome. There,
1: it's like a protein structure, right? So I yeah. don't know. Like, I, it's not technically an organelle. It's like a yeah, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. I is mean,
0: it? yeah, it's a it's a protein structure. How um, do you
1: define an organelle? What defines an organelle?
0: I mean these technically these ca- they, they call it here single organelle quantification in the title but immediately in the inter- introduction they go into the idea of bacterial microcompartments or mm-hmm. BMCs um, mm-hmm. which are a thing in bacteria because they don't have organelles they just have everything sort of floating in a cytosol and sometimes it's bad to have it just floating in a cytosol you want to put things in membranes or structures or in like a shell and this is what these BMCs are there's like three main types there's the carboxysomes mm-hmm. um, they fix carbon uh, we go into the function a little bit later. Then there's a prop- propane diol utilization um, BMC and an e- ethanol amine utilization BMC. Okay. So two other like molecular processes that are performed within this shell of proteins. Um, and these BMCs they protect these enclosed enzymatic reactions um, and they're formed from several hundred individual proteins, um, which is then opposed to things like um, like the. the Thylakoids or the endoplasmatic reticulum, which are membrane systems where you have phospholipid membranes that form the shell and give the structure of the things inside. Um, and what I found really cool about this thing, and I didn't know that when I started reading about this, is the, the overall structure of these things. It's icosahedral, um, which is a 20-sided die. It's so it's sort of the, the RPG, the pen and paper role players of, of uh, in nature. Are bacteria, or uh, in this case, uh, cyanobacteria, that have these BMCs, um, that yeah, with this twenty-sided die. And the, later in the paper, there are electron micrographs where they visualise them, and they really look like that. It's I, I'm always amazed when you find these like very mathematical structures in nature um, at a very high sort of precision. It's not just like resembling one; it really looks like this this structure. Um, yeah, and so in um, they used to, did that here in like I'm I'm just looking up now the the organism again because I always mix up zygnicocystis and zygnococcus, and they used yeah they used elongatus and the strain PCC seven nine four two, which is a sorry it's a very common lab strain, um, and there yeah they, so they wanted. To, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about, like, the carboxysomes in general. So, what they do is, um, it's the place where the if they fix the carbon dioxide into um, into sugars, essentially, into carbohydrates. Um, it's where Rubisco is located. Mm-hmm. And we talked quite a lot about Rubisco um, in, on the blog. We have, like, several articles there. We also have mentioned it in the podcast, I think. Like, where I think we had some Rubisco mm-hmm. papers. Yeah. You did some, right? Mm.
1: Improving... Uh, um,
0: yeah improve, improve. the
1: photorespiration which is downstream of Rubisco I, exactly Sorry, I have ice cream in my mouth <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's yeah. on me I, I served ice cream so um, yeah so it's um, Rubisco is this important enzyme in uh, in plants or in, in photosynthetic organisms because it's the, the one
1: most f- abundant protein in the world
0: yeah uh, it's a protein that um, makes up like it's made up from two subunits RBCL and RBCS the large and the small no it's the large and small small, right like yeah sometimes i'm (laughs) long and short (laughs) yeah long and short is what i said no it's large and small (laughs) it's large and small subunits of rubisco um and they yeah rubisco fixes uh carbon and um the one downside of rubisco is what we also talked about in the paper that it um can't really distinguish between carbon dioxide and oxygen or it can it has it can accept both of them in its active site to different like um, rubisco uh, every rubisco. now and
1: then some oxygen jumps in and that leads to photorespiration <laughs> <Exactly>. rubisco
0: <laughs> yeah
1: Joram <laughs> and I wrote, once wrote a very, very nerdy song about <laughs> Rubisco and how every now and then it falls apart because it's a bit useless. Um, to the, the the soundtrack was... Um,
0: a Total Eclipse of the Heart.
1: Which is the best song that's ever existed. Yeah. And we yeah. sung it and acted it and danced around like idiots in lab coats. Um, yes. And it's probably one of the most productive things I did during my PhD. It's <laughs> one of the I most just,
0: productive things I did in this institute, definitely. In,
1: in my life. Like, I just, I'm the most proud of this. Like, we had special effects. We had Joram, like, running backwards so that we could then, like, reverse it and make him run forward and have, like,
0: yes, uh, Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. The beauty.
1: You never see it. You will never, ever see it because.
0: Yeah, you, it can, yeah, it, there's so many things <laughs> in it that are like, wrong to the point that we can't publish it anywhere ever so it only lives on in our tales
1: and most of those things are yarm singing
0: like (laughs) (laughs) loudly
1: and off key (laughs) for like
0: my singing is so terrible the thing is like
1: just some advice if you ever like do a parody or cover a song make it a short song because if not it's just like seven minutes of (laughs) you just constantly singing and dancing around like an idiot
0: (laughs) and suffering through it and just being like it's funny but it's also terrible (laughs) so Rubisco (laughs) back to Uh, Rubisco (laughs) it it um, has this problem of photorespiration which leads to a loss of energy and there's different ways around it um in higher plants there's like um strangers to the overall structure of the leaves so that um the uh, there's carbon there's carbon dioxide concentrated around There's carbon dioxide concentrated around um, Rubisco. Um, and these carboxysomes, they also do that a little bit. They have these carbonic anhydrases in there. And these carbonic anhydrases, they can use um, uh, HCO3. Now I forgot the Bicarbonate. To watch. Bicarbonate, yeah. They can use bicarbonate. <laughs> that triggers Siri now. <laughs> and that uses bicarbonate. At, and. Um, converted into CO2 and water and this is then a mechanism to to concentrate CO2 around rubisco and so in this this carboxysome you have rubisco and these carbonic anhydrases and then the other proteins in there they are also known um, their identity is known Um, there's CCM35 and 50H these are things that um, stabilize rubisco and the uh, carbonic anhydrase. They sort of put them in a scaffold and in um some carboxysomes they form this like paracrystalline array so they're really really densely packed in a very regular pattern uh, mm-hmm. in there to have the most efficient uh, use of the space um and then there are other structural things uh, one thing that i quite liked again about like the geometry of the whole thing is that there's a subunit called ccml uh, which is a pentagonal subunit and you if you think about like the 20-sided die um first of all i was like where does the pentagonal thing fit in there like all the the sides are triangular and if you put then if uh, where three sides meet at the edge point there you have like five sides that meet like just when you're listening to this just open up google and google like 20 sided die um and then
1: not if you're driving your car
0: especially then uh for me it it opens up google with a yeah uh,
1: me too it just rolled the dice i got a seven
0: yeah i got a three so i'm rolling again win anyway 16 (laughs) but if you count like where all the edges meet you have like five edges you have five edges that meet Tegan is just counting (laughs) let me introduce Tegan our random number generator based by like feature supported by Google Um, Uh,
1: engine (laughs) (laughs)
0: um, you have five edges that meet at every sort of corner of the die Mm. and this is where the subunit sits this pentagonal subunit sits there and caps sort of these edges edge points
1: that's very cool
0: um yeah which i again quite like how to to see like you know you have the pentagonal subunit and then it fits to the geometry of this whole 20-sided thing and then you have like um, subunits k2 k3 and k4 uh, which form the planes of this structure Mm -hmm. and the whole thing is sort of like a a wobbly structure that can perm- can be permeated by CO two and did you roll a high number, Tegan? You're looking <laughs> surprised.
1: You can click and add more dice. So now, like I'm like rolling one ten die, one twelve die, one twenty die, all at the same time. <laughs> dice. Great. My total is thirty two.
0: <laughs> Mine is thirty one. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um,
1: many other structural units as well.
0: Yes. So they, um, yeah. And so this the whole thing is permeable a little bit to CO2 and to the um, b- bicarbonate that can then, in uh, is it bicarbonate? Is that the right word again? Yeah. So that it can enter and actually work with Rubisco. And now it's a sentence that's too close to something I've said so many times that we know a little bit about the assembly and the the identity of the things but we don't really know how everything comes together which is so close to my (laughs) the thing that I used to study uh, which we'll we'll not mention by now Um, but we know something about the assembly of these things how they come together because the interesting thing is it's like a there's many many players involved but it's spontaneously assembled so there's no Mm -hmm. like additional proteins around there's no scaffold scaffolding that has to be put up it's just like these things hang out together and then they form and uh, build up these carboxysomes i think
1: there's actually been some papers where people have tried to make carboxysomes by just overexpressing these proteins in different organisms right and they've got something quite convincing right
0: from the same group they did that in E. coli earlier they mentioned that in the paper I didn't look at the E. coli paper but there they say they managed to express carboxysomes Mm -hmm. in E. coli so a a bacterium that doesn't do usually have uh, that doesn't have uh, carboxysomes and we know something about the assembly there from alpha and beta carboxysomes which are two types and their main difference is the way they're put together and therefore the way they're structured. The alpha carboxysomes, they're built in a less structured way. They sort of randomly assemble from some part of the carboxysome and that results in a much less dense packing and it's more random. So it doesn't yeah. have this crystalline stru- stru- structure. Structure is not as efficient. Then there's the better carboxysomes so that are built from the core outwards. So first all the rubisco units um, assemble in a very tight pack and then the shell is formed around them and in this paper they only talk about better carboxysomes um, so whenever i say carboxysome it's just a better carboxysome um so now we're at the point where we know like the the parts that come together we know a little bit about the structure what it should look like um so how do we, we figure out now how many of these units we actually need um i wish i f- found quite interesting I, I thought a little bit about like what would i u- usually do if i would be now at the start of this research what are the standard methods that we use? Um, one thing that came to my mind is like try to isolate these carboxysomes mm-hmm. and then do a crystal structure on them, mm-hmm. um, which is a method that we usually use for like protein complexes where we try to get like very pure protein complexes and um, uh, uh, make them grow into a crystal. They can be then used with like shot with x-rays and then with complicated mathematics, we can figure out um, the structure of the whole thing. The problem is, you can't really isolate carboxysomes in a, in a way that they're pure enough and clean enough that you can actually put the, uh, get them to grow in a crystal.
1: Yeah, and also the whole point is you've got like the rubisco and stuff inside, right? So then yeah. this you couldn't set up in, in in feature, I guess. It would be quite...
0: Yeah. So you can't really isolate them. So... Um, and make a crystal structure. The other thing I thought is like just do mass spec on them, like do isolate carboxysomes or enrich them and then do mass spec. Mm-hmm. Again the problem is there's no good protocol to to uh, have a clean fraction of the carboxysomes that you can do then a quantitative uh, mass spectrometry where you then identify the proteins and then um form relative amounts. Um, do you have other ideas what you could do with them?
1: Pull them down some way, try and like um Tag one of the shell proteins and see if you can oh, then like do a full. I mean, it's the same as the isolation. Basically, you have kind of the same issues, but there's a like. Yeah. I don't know if that would even ma- work to to tag one of them. I mean, whenever you tag something that's making a dense structure, you have the risk that you're going to screw up its structure. But if there's yeah. a little like an end or That's a tail. actually a good
0: I, 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 an idea that I didn't think of for for this project, um, which is close to what they did because they used some YFP tagging in here. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they didn't uh, do that. I think there the problem is the quantification to be sure that you, if you tag like a shell protein, Mm -hmm. that you're not just pulling down like broken shell proteins because you want to have the relative amounts of the shell protein relative to the the rest of it. Um, Other things that were done in the past are things like full cell mass spectrometry and Western blotting. And both of them like came to some result because you can detect then the individual sub uh, the individual proteins and quantify them relative to each other. Um, but there is the question: Is this really accurate? There might be things like pools of unassembled protein that you then mm. have in your mix, and then you counting that as well.
1: And quantifying relative things with Western blotting is quite tricky, right? Like from like that too. One protein to itself is one thing, but like across proteins, it's a bit yeah it can be a bit shady.
0: Yeah, so. All of these methods like some of them were used in the past but all of them have flaws and problems so we don't really have a good number yet um of how many of the structural subunits you have and how many rubiscos are inside and so on and this is what they try to um to answer here and the technique that here they, that they used is a slim field microscopy Okay. Is that something you have heard of? No, not at because all. Because I also had to research it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it essentially is, it's a confocal microscope. So a microscope that uses a laser and um, a very complicated um, like l- lens assembly that you have this confocal setup where you can sort of just have a single plane within your sample that is in focus. Mm-hmm. And then you can um, sh- uh, shoot a laser at it and have fluorescent signals from something that you tag or something that's fluorescent by itself. And then you can visualize that and do then these um z stacks so you can sort of scan through your sample and then build a 3d model of something um and in a slim field microscopy the setup is very similar but instead of having a laser that sort of illuminates most of the sample um the laser goes also through a lens array and is concentrated or focused to an area roughly the size of one single cell so that gives you like a very strong intensity of the laser in this area Um, and that gives you a very good signal-to-noise ratio for the things that then start to um, fluorescence in this spot. And this gives you the ability to do like millisecond exposures. So instead of having l- longer exposures, where if you have something like a molecule that moves around, it gets a, it becomes a blur and you can't really count it. Mm-hmm. But now with these millisecond exposure times, you can get like catch these things that are constantly like shaking around. You can catch them, sort of freeze them in time. Um, and this is something that has been used in the past to visualize processes like DNA replication in real time, which is the cool thing is you can like then take like one several millisecond picture after the other and then make like little movies out of this and then sh- follow certain uh, signals that you have in there, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool because then they can do that on a single cell level in this case they even narrowed it down to like a single um, sort of organelle or in this case this bMC this carboxysome so So much for introduction of this, (laughs) this stuff. So let's talk about the results. So what did they actually do? Um, they cloned um, YFP fusions to these ca- uh, to all of the carboxysome components, mm-hmm. so all the things that we talked about the structural things, and RuBisCO. And the cool thing here is that they could use homo- homologous recombination in in so they could put the the transgenes or the the fusion products in exactly the spot where you would find them in the natural state. Mm-hmm. So you don't have problems with like promoters. If you introduce like an artificial promoter, you don't you can't count the right, sorry, the, um, the right amount of protein then in your, in your assembly, because yep. if you make a lot of it, it might assemble in different numbers than mm-hmm. in, a, in a natural state. So
1: all of the upstream signals which say how much transcript and then how much um, protein should be made from that transcript are kept exactly as they are in the native
0: state. And this is something we can't do in higher plants, um, apart from the chloroplast, mm-hmm. where well, we have that same process. But in a nuclear gene, uh, genome of higher plants, um, there is not a similar process. So the, uh, the study in Arabidopsis would be much harder. You can har- do
1: it in FISCO. Yeah. Uh, in the MOSS FISCO material yeah. patents.
0: Maybe um, not a
1: higher plant, but a plant
0: then the other thing that they had then to make some like cut down a little bit on the the scope is they couldn't use rbcl and one of these um structural subunits k2 um because um they they didn't fully segregate which means that they still had non-tag protein around that mm-hmm. would mess up the quantification again um so these these cells did not uh, fully like, be f- uh, where fully transform these populations.
1: So, why? How do they know that when they put the YFP tag on, they don't change the stability of the protein? Is one obvious thing. I mean, like, there's this idea that proteins are often degraded from kind of the back end, and if you put a YFP on the back, you're gonna yeah. degrade it. Or also, like, the assembly, I guess, for me would be what I would think of.
0: It's a, it's a very good point. Um, first of all, they look at the growth behaviors of, uh, of these cells, so that that wasn't changed. And then also they had the electron micrographs where they could see the assembled microsome, uh, carboxysomes, but they couldn't see a change to non-transformed um, cells.
1: Did they try growing them under um, like carbon-limiting because not carbon
0: limiting, they they grew them under um, – that's later down in the study. They grew them under high CO2 and under low light and high light as well compared to, to moderate light.
1: Because I would think like if I'm making slightly less carboxysomes because maybe like I'm slower at assembling them because I've got some tags on my mm-hmm. – some of my proteins, I might be completely fine under standard growth conditions. But then if suddenly I'm threatened with like having too much oxygen and not enough carbon dioxide, suddenly my growth might become limiting because yeah. I have a slightly less
0: – I mean the main thing that they had is microscopic data from mm. the electron microscopy and uh, confocal microscopy that they also performed so there they could just visually see that they have carboxysomes in there and that they look uh, comparable to the other ones mm-hmm. of course it's uh, interesting to to think about the um I know I lost my train of thought there to to think about the, yeah the stability of these carboxysomes mm-hmm. um which is something that they didn't directly check but because they um, they cloned all these fusions in parallel so um, this also gives you sort of a control like if uh, one of them would be falling apart you would see different results and like just like some of uh, the proteins that you clone into uh, while in others you might not see this so if you observe the same effects across all of the different fusions it's quite likely uh, and you observe them in light in the microscopy wait they did more them all like
1: separately and then they combined them all together
0: no they did in the individual uh, analysis of the individual lines so they had a line okay, where okay, just the okay. structural thing was tagged mm-hmm. a line where just a rubisco was tagged and so on okay um and, but in all of them, they observed uh, the same um, mechanical uh, me- mechanistic things. So they, okay, cool. they came mm-hmm. to the same conclusions. Um, yeah, so from that then, they looked at these these constructs in the slim field microscope, where they could then follow these individual proteins. They got like little specks uh, of signal um, in the microscope. And then with the, they go in the methods through the analysis of this, which is quite complicated. Um but each
1: time they look at the microscope, they're looking at one single one of the x number of proteins, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. At one single protein identity, and then they see them several times because they have several, uh, they exist several times in mm-hmm. there in the structure. Um, I'm just pulling up a picture. Uh, you can look at this because this paper is open access as well. But here, this is a, this is a uh, how they look like. It's just like it looks like little green pixels within, um, sort of the the cell that is there given there with a dotted line because mm-hmm. you can't see the cell in this sort of imaging. Mm-hmm. Um, But each of these little uh, dots is a signal coming from a protein. And then with um, a very sophisticated downstream analysis, they can then figure out, um, the. they can actually count them. And I do have a table with all of the numbers, but it doesn't tell you much. If I tell you it's like 860 uh, RBCS proteins or rubiscos um, compared to... 7.4 Uh, 7.4 ccmL subunits.
1: Wait, 850 rbcs within one carboxysome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That is and hopefully the the number of rbcs is similar to the rbcl.
0: The rbcl they couldn't test because the. Ah, okay, the, that you said. Sorry, yeah. The yeah, it wasn't stable with uh, tagging the large subunit, mm-hmm. which is a problem that we know people <laughs> that, that had that problem as well in research. <laughs> Um, Uh, Every now
1: and then you fall apart. But interestingly,
0: something like the the carbonic anhydrase is only 14 copies of that in Mm -hmm. there. Um, So now, yeah, they have now this table, which is really interesting to basic researchers um, because now you can estimate how much you have there. Mm -hmm. There's one interesting thing, like this cap protein that we talked about, this uh, um, pentagonal uh, protein on the edges, there's less than eight in them. Um, on, on average which um, is less like that means that not all of them not all of these caps uh, all of these edges are capped uh, which is something that has been seen in other um, studies as well. So apparently this structure is also stable even if you don't have these caps on these edge points. Okay. This is something uh, especially noted in the study as well. Um, so now that they knew on a moderate light under a standard uh, air conditions sort of like uh, comfortable conditions for the cells they knew what these carboxysomes looked like but now it's interesting to look at uh, what happens under different conditions do these carboxysomes react to that? Is, is are mm-hmm. the is the structure any different? So what they used to test that is low light and high light uh, with air. And then they used um, CO2 rich versus just regular air under moderate light. Mm -hmm. And then they compared that. And because the slim field experiment is quite complicated and tedious, they did something interesting here is that they sort of created a conversion factor from standard confocal microscopy to slim field microscopy. So they did a couple of samples in both things, looked how this correlated, and then later could only do confocal microscopy and still uh, draw conclusions because they Mm -hmm. had this accurate data from the slim field that they could always compare it to. Um, And with that, um, they generated even more numbers. If you look in the paper, the table has many more columns with um, the different other conditions. Now we have an attacking cat that wants to steal... (laughs) They wants to see probably some of the ice cream leftovers. Um, <laughs> no don't't don't, don't step on my keyboard. <laughs> that, that's it. That's why you, that's why you leave the place. <laughs> so they yeah, they they found new numbers, but now the interesting thing is to look at what does that mean for the structure in general. Um, and they constructed at the, in the last figure of the paper. they have a nice um, they have a model view of the um, of the carboxysome. And the conclusion here is that under high lights, um, uh, the carboxysomes become bigger and larger, and under high CO2 or under low light, they become smaller. Um, mm-hmm. And that changes then the stoichiometric relations between these individual subunits, because obviously the ones in the volume, um, the ch- if you increase the, the size of it, the volume increases quicker than the... Um,
1: Surface the area. area the
0: surface area um, and that is then also represented in the amount of protein re- found in these carboxysomes, mm-hmm. um, which is yeah quite quite interesting to see um, and now they could compare this method with previous estimates we talked about like other metho- methods that were used before mm-hmm. and um What they found there is that largely uh, the previous estimates based on Western blots, they largely overestimated the amounts that were uh, in some of these components. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to the idea that these Western blot quantifications, they are quite tricky to do and often inaccurate once you start looking closer. So they give you a general idea, but they're not a real thing. Um, Because they're probably cytosolic storages, which is also something that wasn't previously like properly shown but this indicates that there must be cytosolic so, like, storages of these components
1: with their highlight and low light was that was that grown for like i don't know days and days or was it like a, a switch because it would be interesting to i think they to were the... grown
0: under this this okay. wasn't um...
1: like for future studies we could be cool to see like the dynamics of the switch like how rapidly it can increase its size or are you destroying the old ones and making new bigger ones like what's the kind of process of of
0: development yeah I'm just trying to find the indication of how long they were growing them in the methods. Um, but I don't find an indication of... I
1: guess if it just says grown under, then it means that they weren't switched. They were just grown like... Yeah, there wasn't a was As a, a pulse. culture, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they were maintained and grown under different intensities. Yeah. So, yeah, they... For the most part of their life, they just saw this type of light. Um, so, yeah, they could show that their method is much more precise. And now come, we come to, like, why all of this? Why is this important? First of all, like, it's really cool for um, basic researchers working on carboxysomes. Mm-hmm. For them, like, this this is always the stuff that you rely on so much. Like, I, for for me, it was crystal structures. Um, it's the thing that if you work with protein complexes, these structures really help you in figuring out how these things p- come together, how this works together. Um, but also for biotechnology, this knowledge is super important because we talked about. Oh, sorry, I thought I kicked you. I kicked the cat. I'm not sorry. <laughs> no, I didn't. Ki- I didn't. <laughs>
1: Your arm does not abuse his animals.
0: No, I'm. Yeah, I was gently touched by my foot. Um, so, these these uh, BMC compartments um, they protect enzymes, and in biotechnology, this is often an important thing, right? You have an enzymatic pathway, and sometimes the cell conditions are either not great for your pathway or the pathway is not great for the cell compartments mm-hmm. around it. So having a protein shell around it could really help in biotechnology. And also the other thing that they noted in the paper is that they introduced all of this YFP that they tagged the proteins with and this didn't destroy the carboxysomes You because mm. they could still observe them, which means the carboxysomes can take up a certain amount of foreign protein in them and still function, which could be another route that to, to just like take functioning carboxysomes and add other things of value in there that we care for, for biotechnology. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, then, taken together with the idea that they could introduce carboxysomes in E. coli, maybe the next step in synthetic biology is to have a um, enzymatic pathway or a certain enzymatic reaction encapsulated by these structural proteins that can self-assemble spontaneously and then protect whatever is inside and uh, have favorable com- con- conditions in there, and then apparently also uh, dynamically react to changes in outside conditions. Mm-hmm this is why this study um at least to the authors and but also in my opinion is a, is a pretty cool thing and also it's just cool to visu- visualize single organelle structures
1: yeah cool yeah
0: that is my very molecular paper
1: I, I was looking and yes there was one which came out last year in um nature communications which is putting the carboxylosomes of also um uh, cyanobium so i think it's also um a uh, uh, um, cyanobacteria, but putting that into the plasters of plants, um, and they also got accumulation of the carboxysomes, but the plants I think were a bit sick, as is often the case yeah. <laughs> when we try to improve photosynthesis. But that's why we need research like this so we can like
0: yeah, because eventually l- get it right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. Bye. cream break
1: my favorite plant yeah my favorite plant of this week is um, coming off our theme that we've been working on a little bit on the blog which is the idea of alternative crops um so looking at what other things we have out there that could be possible food sources for the human population with a particular focus on things which might grow in very rough conditions so one side of it is trying to improve the current crops that we have, or like improve them by making them able to cope with like high salinity or high like drought stress or pest stress. And the other is like, hey, do we have any crops which they're maybe not the perfect crop as far as they don't make the best food yet, but they do have these other things. So instead of trying to take the perfect food source and make it better at drought, we take the perfect drought resistant plant and make it a better food source. It's kind of the other yeah. side of the coin. And we talked about it a little bit with Pennycrest previously. So this idea of um, this relative Arabidopsis, which might be able to be used to um, have as, a, as an oil plant. So currently it's a weed. It has um, a very short growing time. It can grow in the cold. And maybe we can also then... Um, <laughs> I'm just pouring
0: myself a drink.
1: <laughs> we can also um, use this as like an actual oil seed. Um, yeah. And the one I'm looking at today, I found on the basis of um, when I was just searching for things in PubMed. Um, there's a recent, what's it called? Of course, I've lost it now. <laughs> Crops for the Future, CFF. So um, it's a Malaysian incentive. I think it's Malaysia and also one of the um, UK universities where they're kind of doing, um, they did a recent publication in PLANTA, which is an overview of research efforts in the adoption of underutilized species. Mm-hmm. And they focus mainly on Vigna subterranea, Um, You can tell from the subterranea that it grows under the ground. Um, It's also called an earth pea, or a ground bean, or a hog peanut. So um, it's a member of the Fabaceae, so it's a bean. Um, But it's basically, they say it's quite like a peanut, so it grows, ripens in pods and grows underground. Um, And it grows in Africa, um, in semi-arid regions, and there it's used kind of as a fairly important food source. Um, and it's suitable for marginal soils where, like other legumes, can't really grow very well. Um, it has like okay nutritional value. It's sixty five percent carbohydrates, eighteen percent protein. So not huge amounts of protein, but it's it's nutritional. Um, and then it grows fairly quickly. It um, produces kind of fu- uh, fruit over like consecutively, over, uh, hmm. repeatedly.
0: Uh, perennial is that.
1: I don't know. Um, and it can also like right. self-pollinate and self-fertilize and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, the main problem of it is that um, it requires a short day photo period. So it won't make, it won't fill the pods. It won't make the actual nutritious thing that you eat, the ground nut, unless it has very short day photo periods, which of course um, limits where you can grow it. So you can only grow it a certain latitudes um and you also have to think about the timing when you plant the crop otherwise like you've got a crop but it's not going to make any of the the seed or the nut no. um and the other thing is that it's kind of hard to cook so um this means that you have to cook it for a long time or blah 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 which puts like more fuel demands on poorer households which is then an mm-hmm. additional problem um but then yeah it has some other benefits where it has like symbolic right ry- uh, a partnership with rhizobia so this is quite common in 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 bean species um and it can give the the potential to kind of, yeah, as I said, be drought tolerant, be be ready, and also like give some more food security when there are hard times um, in the sub-Saharan African regions. Um, so in the paper, they briefly discuss how they're trying to use this species and um, develop it. So they've already bred a a variety which has lower sensitivity to this like photo period phenomenon so it doesn't get so mm-hmm. upset if the, the days are not short enough um, and now they're also looking at the cookability so they said it's, it's not too bad it's like similar to how long you have to cook a soya bean for um, so it's not like the worst thing ever but it's, it's kind of not an ideal situation but this was just one and then in the paper they had like four or five other potential species that they think can be like crops for the future.
0: Which yeah, but all these traits sound like things that are very common breeding targets. Mm-hmm. So there should be knowledge around how to do the to do the breeding there. I mean, I guess I don't know. Is it closely related to anything that we use already?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. They just kept on saying it was like a peanut, but I don't think it's at all related. It's 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 from okay. the the bean family. Um, I'll see if there's anything close enough to it. I mean, it's Glycine subterranea, which. Mean, glyc- no, but that's not. It's not glycine mass. It's not the same um, okay. genotype. No, I don't see any. I, I don't see any phenotype okay. here, so I'm not sure. But, yeah, but usually, sorry.
0: once you have uh, a relative that you know, there's often a lot of things that you can learn from that and take that over. I mean, we had it again with the pennycress, right? That's so closely related to Arabidopsis, and so mm. the amazing pool of Arabidopsis research could be used for pennycress, and um, yeah, for any new crops like this. This is um, then always. I mean. Yeah, you have to be lucky that that you have this knowledge. Otherwise, you have to do basic research to get that knowledge. Yeah, but yeah, but it's cool. I
1: think they also said it doesn't have um serious pest problems. Um, so this is another benefit. And I think I should also say one of the other um names is the Bambara nut because I believe it's named the, the the Bumbara people are found in the region, so that might be the local name of the nut. But I'm not certain. But okay, if it is, I want to give um credit where it's due.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins.
1: Fun facts. Yarm's gone like he's staring at his computer with his mouth open. Um
0: <laughs> what people didn't know, I'm a mouth breather.
1: Um I have something that i wanted to mention briefly because last time we talked about climate change and we got into like yoram's get off my lawn part where he started raging no you weren't raging about climate change you were raging about open access yeah
0: um
1: i wanted to say a good news kind of thing about um all of the terrible terrible things that are happening in the world so when i was doing when i was going through school i always really wanted to be a conservation biologist and actually studied that in university that was like my should i make
0: my jam joke again
1: Oh my goodness, no. <laughs> um, and yeah, I started that at university and actually found it um, quite depressing because as we mentioned, thinking about conservation is
0: sometimes just really terrifying and wow. Um, <laughs> so, Next time, just, can you put the depressing things at the end? So I'm not like,
1: No, 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 at the start and then we get it over it because this is like kind of the upbeat. Side. So having said that, when I went through my, my undergraduate course at university, one thing that stuck in my mind, like one of the most- amazing things that I learned in the whole of whatever three or four years I thought was this idea of biodiversity hotspots so mm-hmm. I think I maybe mentioned that we had a paper a while back so but
0: yeah, I think it was one of the first episodes we talked about biodiversity hotspots yeah
1: but just as a reminder this is regions of the earth which has to meet two very simple criteria they have to have more than 1500 vascular plant species as endemic which means you can find them there but they don't aren't found in other places in the world and this is very important because vascular plants make kind of the basis of the ecosystem so Mm. um, although they the criteria is vascular plants it means you also find a lot of like vertebrates and birds and um, birds of vertebrates Um, (laughs) mammals birds reptiles things like that Um, and the second criteria is it has to be very threatened so 70 percent of the original habitat has to have been taken away already Um, and on the basis of this we now have 36 regions across the world um and the great thing is that these 36 total regions represent just 2.4 percent of the earth's land surface so last week after the kind of depressing discussion about climate change we came to this kind of idea of like okay it has to be a global effort and what I really like about these is um if you think of biodiversity spots that's where we should be spending most of our conservation money so obviously we have limited resources we have limited time we have limited money but if you want to save as much of the planet as possible for the, as little cost, this is the 2.4% that we have to put our money into. And again, like one of the big problems with conservation is that people want to conserve locally because they see something in their backyard and they want to fix it. But the reality of the situation is that most of us in the like Europe, um, the, the first world as you would call it, um, that's not where the big problems are. There's a lot of problems in the tropics. Um, so this is where the money needs to be spent. So us in Australia spending money on Australia. Actually, Australia is a bad example because we have two biodiversity hotspots now. Um, but yeah, let's say people in the US trying to spend money in in the California and coastline is not so important. That money, the most important place to put the money is in these 36 regions around the world. Um, so if you go to conservation, www.conservation.org, you can have a look at where these areas are Um And if you ever think about donating money to conservation biology, I would say this is a good, this is where I put some of my money now because I, for me, it's this idea of like, this is the the most important, like if I have limited money, this is where I put it. Not that we're telling you you have to put your money anywhere, but I like (laughs) the idea of coming to a logical solution of saying like, hey, the situation is dire. So what's the best we can do in in a crappy situation? And as far as I can tell, this is the best we can do. This is, Um, what we can do and they're they're also talking about extending it to try and include more um, like representation of ocean as well so like non-terrestrial landscapes but um, for now this is kind of what we have so yeah have a look at that conservation.org
0: sort of like related and not related at the same time to this is my my fun fact have you ever heard about biosphere 2 no this is a thing i've been
1: to the potsdam
0: biosphere (laughs) biosphere 2 is a project um that a group of cultists slash scientists oh dear um wanted to recreate where they wanted to recreate a biological ecosystem does Um, it have dinosaurs in it no not dinosaurs but they wanted to recreate sort of a self-contained system a closed system that could work that could support eight people for two years um And they did that in the U.S. Um, The whole thing was funded by an insanely rich oil tycoon who Mm -hmm. sort of... Got into this culti- cultist thing. Um, it's not really a cult there. It's like these. It was a group of people who first like traveled around the world and performed like mostly theatrical pieces where they would explore like things like sustainability in nature and being down to earth and so on. Mm. Um, and they they thought about what can they do with their money uh, from this oil tycoon who was really funding them, and so they came up with this idea of biosphere two, um, and the the interesting thing is like they actually managed that they had eight people living in there for two years um but these people they suffered so much like they pretty mentally mentally but also physically because they very quickly um faced starvation like the main crop that they were growing in there were um, um sweet potato and they ate a lot of sweet potato but they were always feeling hungry they didn't get enough calories from that the better carotene turned their, their palms um, like orange, orange. <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, still they would be losing weight then at the same time the, the although they, they worked with scientists for a while to, to design the whole thing but they got the calculations of the CO2 wrong and so the CO2 accumulated in there to I think up to 4000 parts per million which is like 10 times more than the 400 Whoa. parts per million that we are scared about now for climate change um, and so they suffered from that. that that made it hard for them to think to work and so on and so then they split into two groups like these eight people split into two groups of like four people who said we have to break up the, the, the system we have to let air in we have to get outside resources and we're starving in here and the others were saying like look we have to keep on Uh, working in this experiment we have presumably
1: they're being watched by scientists and like trained physicians and stuff right
0: yeah but still like the everybody outside then like the whole thing got a lot of media attention it was like in the early 90s like late 80s early 90s that this happened um, it got a ton of media attention, so it was very important to them that this thing was a success. So the outside world was not helping much. Mm-hmm. Um, so they eventually they decided to let in um, a burst of oxygen to lower the CO2 concentration, and that helped for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they managed to g- get over the two years, but in the end they started digging into their grain reserves that they would un- actually wanted to plant, and they started eating their seeds because otherwise they would have starved in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, and then yeah after these two years um, they they left their whole um, physiology had changed to the point that they couldn't deal with regular food anymore outside they had to like slowly adapt again it was like a major thing for these eight people um, also on a physical level Um, and then like the whole organization around it broke apart and now this thing is owned by a university in the US and it's a conference venue Mm -hmm. uh, which is really weird because it still is like this big I think it's like a dome shaped structure and so on um so this whole thing I I just found it fascinating I learned about this in a podcast it's called Nice Try it's dealing with uh, utopias Mm -hmm. and I can totally recommend this like the first episode I listened there was about uh, Tempelhofer Feld and the whole plans of Hitler for Germany so Hitler's utopia for um, Germania the capital of the city and how we can still see that today in Berlin architecture. This was the episode that I got into this podcast and mm-hmm. now in the se- next episode I listened to was about this biosphere. And the whole story is even crazier and much more complicated than I just explained here. So absolutely go to, uh, like go to this podcast. Nice try. Um, I think it's um, from the same people in the in the sphere around um, uh, This American Life. So it's people who know how to do uh, podcasts very well. So this is from Avery Truffleman. Um, and yeah, it's just it's an amazing story. the the, the podcast is super well produced, super well, to, uh, amazingly told. And yeah, just this biosphere it's 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 crazy to think about how yeah how they came up with designing an ecosystem and how they almost succeeded. I mean, they they had some major flaws in there, but apart from the CO two and the starvation issue, the rest seemed to work. And mm. and I think they had like a fake ocean in there as well. Um, so they, they thought of many dif- different things
1: it reminds me a bit there was I think of this American life actually now that you mention it about this um, Japanese game show where there was like a guy and he was in a house and they only gave him what he could win by playing these like magazine games and like for the first like three or four days he just like I mean he's, he's applying all these games but it takes a while for it to come so it was like five or six days before he got any rice And then he had, like, rice, but he had no way to cook the rice. So he had to, like, soak it in. And he just, like, carried on in this thing. Eventually, like, just, like, holding on to life by these, like, yeah. Fun fun game show. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the twist was, like, he finally got out of the house. And then they, like, decided to do season two. And they just, like, took him and dumped him in the middle of Korea or something. And, like, kept on playing. And he just kept on playing. Like, he could have actually left any time at the start. But he just, like, he just kept on doing it. Yeah. Strange.
0: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, <it's> strange things <laughs> that people come up with um, for entertainment, or in this case, like a weird combination of science. But scientists also had problems with this, these experiments because it, it was lacking many controls. It's it's yeah, you it's sort it's of set like... up the system, but you have no controls for any of the things that you look at. Mm. So researchers, although there were some conclusions that they could draw from this, um, uh, I think there were also some some research papers that came from this. But overall not useful yeah it's it's not how anyone would set up an experiment really
1: mm. interesting yeah speaking of food um I have something from my friend who a couple of days ago decided to make minestrone soup and failed to cook <laughs> the beans properly and felt very ill indeed and this is something I didn't know and we kind of talked about it um with my favorite plant the idea of um cookability of food yeah. <laughs> um So when you have dry beans, you have to usually soak them. You often soak them overnight, but then you also have to cook them. Um, And apparently it's because beans have lectin in them, which is found in most beans, but in different amounts, in different, um, Mm -hmm. different beans, obviously. And apparently it like interferes with the cell membrane so it basically like blocks the the membranes from like being able to let things in or out i'm reading this from gizmodo so i'm not i haven't like looked into the science behind this but i think it's not a terrible source um so they have these things uh called uh human uh toxicity units or something like this um because it also sticks blood cells together which is (laughs) not what you want um Lots well, yeah. to do. Um, so, apparently, when you cook them, it's fine. You only have about 200 of these units, but raw ones contain 70,000 okay. of the units. And apparently, undercooking them might be <laughs> worse than raw ones. Um, so, this is a nice quote from the, the article, um, <laughs> which is written by Esther Inglis Arkel on, as I said, Gizmodo. Undercooked beans might actually be worse than raw ones. In one study, heating beans to under 80 degrees. Cause the lectin to be more active, not less. The beans know you've made an attempt on their life, and they don't like it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it can cause extreme gastrointestinal distress. Is the take-home message? And is it I'd-
0: something you could observe? Is it from the undercooked minestrone?
1: My friend was ill. That was the take home message. Like and I like when you say ill from beans, I think, oh, just like gas, like you just like a gassy, but then they were like, No, this was like very ill. Like I, I never knew that with like sh- should not I know me. that? How yeah,
0: d- How can we yeah.
1: This is a bit concerning that we've we only ever buy beans in cans and we've never had the the concept of like eating
0: I never liked eating like cooking raw beans because usually they came from gardens and they were like super fibrous and I hate that mouth feeling of having fibrous beans. Well, now you beans. know
1: they're fibrous. They can also cause your red blood cells to stick together. So it's like yeah, so I will double bammy, whammy. Cook,
0: cook the hell out of all the beans that I eat from now on. Okay. Uh, speaking of, of studies, I have a small science fact. <laughs>
1: that was a bad segue. That was worse than my food segue. <laughs> speaking <Yeah>. of science... <laughs>
0: being in a room with you that (laughs) makes me think of another science (laughs) research thing um uh, there was a meta study that was recently published um About off target effects in CRISPR, which is a big thing that people always criticize about CRISPR. They always say, like, yeah, CRISPR might be precise and everything, but what about the off targets? So, what about the things that you edit that you didn't plan to edit, that you just have sort of a drive by effect? And so, in this uh, meta study, they looked at, uh, I think, over 90 papers um, that dealt um, with, that looked at off targets effects and looked at what they could find. And the overall conclusion is that if you do unbiased searches, so if you just do whole genome sequences uh, sequencing, you can't really find anything. None of the, re- s- the studies that used whole genome sequencing found any off target effects uh-huh. when they compared sort of edited to non-edited plants. And um, very few could be found in biased searches. So that's in silico predictions, so computer predictions of off-target sites, and then doing PCR genotyping, of these sites and then looking very closely at some things that you sort of in a computer predicted that they might be hit then they, sometimes they could find some but all, overall the numbers were very small and nothing compared to what happens whenever you do just like random mutagenesis um, uh-huh. but yeah so that that is finally like a study um, answering this question of off-target effects which come up in the discussion about CRISPR and plant research all the time uh-huh. just a small thing do we have something else? I just have I found Yeah. I have I have
1: one about goats and one about cats. The one about goats is not very like it's from IFL Science. Um I fucking love science. Um and it just said goats can understand the emotional state of their peers from the sound of their bleats. And I literally just clicked on it because the the front picture was a goat <laughs> bleating. And then instead of reading the article, I went and watched the Taylor Swift parody <laughs> with a goat bleating. So that made me happy. You guys should go and read the article in your own time because it's not my problem.
0: Yeah, <laughs> goats that scream like people is the best thing on the internet. It's
1: literally the best ah! thing. Like, there are other things on the internet. There are cats on the internet, but yeah, goats. <laughs> um, then Because we now have a, a tradition of trying to end with cat facts. Um, no, I have stuff before
0: we end. Okay, you go. Mine First of not- all, I have to rant um but also i have a small um, book that i want to plug Uh, it's called crops in tight spots we just bought this a book about gardening and growing crops in tiny spaces like balconies or windowsills um it's very nicely written it has great pictures in there a lot it's very inspiring um and um yeah so have a look if you have like just a tiny space to grow crops look at um look at this book. It might it might be very cool. I think it just came out very recently. So it's very fresh.
1: It's by Alex Mitchell and she's a gardening columnist for the London Evening Standard.
0: Ah, good. I didn't research that. Thanks for, for that. <laughs> That's why we both have computers. Um, yeah. And then I just, just, it just came up before we started recording here. We just got an amazing comment on the blog. <laughs> I eh? want to read that here. It says, thank you for the good write-up. It in fact was enjoyment accounted. Clom- glance complex to more broad agreeable from you um. however how could we be in contact
1: <laughs> okay so your rant of m- to the day is
0: bots bots are taking over uh, no my, my actual rant of the day actually I don't want to call it a rant corner I think I just want to cha- shame closed access papers um, where we won't tell you the story about researchers uh, who put a mi- antimicrobial peptide from a frog into poplar to make it more resistant against fungi it's a very cool story unfortunately you can't read it unless you have a university oh account. that sounds cool though it sounds cool, though, doesn't it? There Close must be access. something
1: open access online,
0: though, right? Um, yeah, but this this particular paper, I think you I also looked it. I, I looked it up. And yeah. it was um, behind a paywall. And it was an expensive paywall. It was like, sometimes they want $8. This one wants $41.59 euros.
1: It's not expensive. You're just too poor. <laughs> In
0: time. Um, yeah. So, I can just read the key message and the abstract. Um, it's so, It sounds pretty cool. Um, but yeah, uh, we won't be telling I that can't story. I can find it
1: anyway. I think you imagined this.
0: I have a, I can send you the link. We we will link to the paper. But if you have university access, maybe you're lucky and you can read this.
1: Maybe you know the authors and you can ask them to make it open access if they have the possibility. Sometimes people can upload things yeah, on ResearchGate if they have... Yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't target individual authors and individual papers. We should discuss the system and how it's car- <laughs> yeah. currently being improved with maybe, time.
0: Maybe I'm just angry because I, I, I quite like the story. But then I hit paywall again after paywall and was just like, okay, never mind. <laughs> I'll, f- I'll find another story. Um so yeah but I think it sounds actually quite cool like it's one of these things if you don't know what
1: antimicrobial peptides are it's um, found in like all kingdoms of life basically and it's just small like mini proteins. so peptide is just like a a bunch of amino acids Um, and the idea is that they are antimicrobial so they basically come and hit uh, bacterial membranes and they just screw up the membrane It's, it's their main form of action so they just get into the membranes and basically rip holes in them or just like break them up and thus kill the bacteria yeah and frogs have them on their skin which is how frogs can have such disgustingly moist skin and usually moistness is where bacteria and fungus and all that other crap will grow and they have this and this basically prevents them from becoming a walking like yeah. bacteria factory
0: yeah and I think in the, in the paper what they did is that they took that and put that into poplar um, a tree to make it more resistant against invad- invading um, pests uh, due to the climate crisis um yeah so now now you have my permission to end the podcast on a cat fact
1: no i actually i didn't have any cat facts this week so i googled cat news and it was super depressing (laughs) because it was like real news sites which has news about cats and it's all about people who abuse cats and murder cats and then just was like super super sad um so then i what made me happy is i found something about a cat whose name i think is hattie and Hattie was caught in a bridge, like stuck in between like the the bits of the bridge and the people tried to like lure her out with food and tried to like get her out of the bridge. They couldn't really quite reach cause like bridge. And eventually the the firemen came and at a cost of like 500 pounds per hour for 10 hours they tried to get Hattie out and eventually they had to give up and go home and say we'll do it like tomorrow and then an hour later Hattie rocked up at home and was like give me food <laughs> that's so, so cat like yeah we give a big thumbs up to Hattie <laughs> the asshole cat proving that <laughs> all cats are just bastards <laughs> Well done, Hattie.
0: I always think of like, when my cats climb around in the garden, I wonder if like, if they eventually climb up a tree and can't get down, do I actually call the firefighters or Is always that like a, a stereotype you hear from stories?
1: I had like, my one of my cats once got caught up because I had been like scared by something. So it was scared by a dog and then it went up a tree and it it basically had just like scrambled up and they can't back down properly, right? So if there's not branches to come down on this, so she'd like scrambled like six meters up a tree and like couldn't get down. But yeah, Yeah. generally cats are just like teasing you and making life hard.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of this gift that somebody reversed of a cat being uh, safe from a a telephone pole in the US and then when you reverse it it's just a guy who like carefully plants a cat on top of a pole and then backs down again with his ladder <laughs> yes <laughs> you
1: be here now <laughs> yeah.
0: this is for spending like 10 hours of firefighter time <laughs> now you see what this brought you
1: mm, I think that's that's it for today <laughs> then. that's it
0: for today um, follow us on all of the social media
1: on Instagram and Facebook we're at plants and pipettes
0: on Twitter we're at plants and pipettes and
1: of course we also have a blog which is
0: www.plantsandpipettes.com where you find lots of articles about research that we don't mention in the podcast and uh, other things that we research there and lots of drawings. So whenever whenever you don't listen to an episode, you better be reading one of our articles.
1: All of the time. And um, please, as always, comment, leave reviews, leave suggestions, tell us what you want to hear about or your favorite plant and or cat, whatever. We'd be happy to discuss stuff. That you tell us on the podcast as well.
0: And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross.
1: Goodbye. Bye.